I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. President Trump recently signed four executive actions related to COVID-19 relief. And some have argued that in issuing these orders and memoranda, the president overstepped his constitutional authority. Today, we'll dive into whether or not these actions were legal or constitutional with two of America's leading experts on constitutional and administrative law. Adam White is an assistant professor of law at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School, where he also directs the C. Boyden Gray Study for the Center of the Administrative State. He's also a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and a public member of the Administrative Conference of the United States. He co-wrote an article for National Review with Yuval Levin on the recent executive actions called The Return of Pen and Phone Constitutionalism. Adam, it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks, Jeff. It's so great to be here. And David Super is Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Law and Economics at Georgetown Law where his research focuses on administrative law, constitutional law, legislation, and more. His piece, Inadequate, Unworkable, and Unlawful, the Trump Unemployment Aid Program, is available on the Balkanization blog. David, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with the unemployment executive action. Uh, This was a presidential memorandum about aid to the unemployed, It purported to fill the gap created by the expiration of the emergency supplemental unemployment insurance benefits of $600 a week that Congress established in the CARE Act. Adam, in your recent piece with Yuval Levin in the National Review, you argued that you were agnostic about whether or not the unemployment action was uh, illegal and violated uh, what you called the legal constitution, but you said that it did violate the political constitution. Uh, Explain uh, that argument. Well, it all comes down to context. Um, President Trump didn't just issue these executive orders and presidential memoranda out of the blue. They came in the context of the ongoing and seemingly stalemated congressional and administration negotiations, the negotiations between the Republicans and Democrats, between the House, the Senate, and the White House over what to do next in the ongoing economic Uh, relief that's needed amid the COVID-19 outbreak. And instead of negotiating to a final legislative conclusion, President Trump just announced that he was doing this on his own um, on a variety of subjects. But again, especially in terms of trying to extend unemployment through sort of a convoluted approach with the for FEMA grants under the Stafford Act, and then the extension or the deferral, I'm sorry, of, of payroll tax payments the reason why we think we're a little agnostic on the law, because and maybe David has more fixed thoughts on this, but a little agnostic on the law because we wanted to focus on the political constitution, that even if the, the administration can find a colorable legal argument justifying its actions under the statute, statutes that are so often written so broadly, the fact is this is a presidential effort to short-circuit a legislative process to assert, in some ways, a power of the purse of his own, but at the very least distorting the ongoing legislative negotiations that should result in law and funding 
trying to either go it alone or to so dramatically skew the political table going forward, such as through this payroll tax deferral, that it really is going to distort whatever legislative process follows. David, your views on the legality of the unemployment measure are clear in the headlines of the Balkanization Post, inadequate, unworkable, and unlawful, uh, the Trump unemployment aid program. Uh, you make a multi-part argument about why the president's actions are unlawful under the Stafford Disaster Relief and Emergency Assistance Act. If you could uh, explain why you think the program is unlawful, that would be great. Um, certainly. The program uh, is, in essence, uh, violating several express conditions in the Stafford Act. The Stafford Act says you can use FEMA money for unemployment, but only for people that aren't covered by uh, state unemployment programs and only up to the state maximum. Uh, what the president is doing is creating an unemployment program for people who are covered by state programs uh, and whose sole purpose is to exceed the maximum. So there are explicit requirements in the Stafford Act uh, that the president is violating. In addition, the Stafford Act says that if you give money under the section the president is using, the states have to pay a quarter of the cost. States can't afford it, so the president is going forward with the federal government paying the whole cost. That's also illegal. Adam, as you hear David's arguments, and they're enumerated in detail in, in, in his pieces, you yourself are agnostic, as you said, because you hadn't dug into the statutory arguments. But what are the chances of a court agreeing with David and striking down the unemployment executive action? Well, anytime you talk about the courts, it's important to focus on what will actually happen in implementation. Um, both the executive orders, they're written in pretty broad terms, and we have to see whether the, the Trump administration actually attempts to carry out the program along the lines that David suggested, um, actually going forward and breaking the, breaking the specific requirements of the Stafford Act. We'll see if that happens. I mean, so many of these things that have been done through executive orders and other executive actions are really more for show to shape a political mood, especially in the run up to the election. So I'm always wary about talking about the courts before we see how things actually play out, because only then will we see whether the courts actually have a case or controversy before them, whether there's actually litigants withstanding. And then once they get into the statutory arguments, seeing how these things are actually applied and seeing whether there's any room for a colorable legal argument to which the courts might give deference pursuant to the many doctrines under which courts too often defer to administrative action. That's why I was sort of holding my punches back a little bit on the specific legal arguments. David makes some very, very good arguments and they may well prove to be true. Um, I have no reason to doubt that they would actually, um, but I'm waiting to see whether the Trump administration's implementation actually goes so far as the executive orders themselves suggest they might. Thanks for that. David, as you discuss in your pieces, the president shifted his description of the program several times and, and each time raised new statutory difficulties. Um, describe what those difficulties are and are the courts well equipped to review presidential actions of these kind given the possibility for uh, constantly shifting uh, enforcement? Well, I, I think Adam's points are well taken. Uh, this very well uh, may not play out in the courts, uh, 
Uh, one thing that's likely to happen is because this program is unlawful, is the Government Accountability Office or the Inspector General is likely to declare that and make the states pay the federal government back the money. That will create a whole different kind of crisis. I think the threat that that would happen is probably going to cause a number of states to not implement the program because they can't afford to pay the federal government back. So that's a lot of ways that it could happen. It also could affect the implementation by federal officials who face criminal penalties if they dispense money that was not appropriated by Congress. And this money was not appropriated by Congress for this purpose. So there likely are going to be individual federal civil servants that refuse to participate in the implementation of this. And that could lead to some of the kinds of changes that Adam talks about. Adam, I hear both of you saying that uncertainty about implementation may lead the unemployment program not to be implemented. Uh, similar questions arise uh, with the presidential memorandum that suspends the payroll tax payments for some workers through the end of the year, although it allows workers who earn less than $8,000 a month to defer their tax payments from September through the end of December. Many companies have already said they won't implement the program because of fears about uh, implementation and feasibility. Tell us more about that program and what it tells us about uh, rule by executive order. Well, this is a point that Yuval Levin and I raised in the National Review article that you mentioned. And then I followed it up in a piece for The Bulwark, which I called the, the costs of unsteady administration. And this theme that you've identified for both the unemployment benefits and for the payroll tax deferral. They go to the question of steady administration or the lack thereof. What President Trump has done in these actions has created frameworks that are just unworkable due to the uncertainty. They're unworkable both within the administration and within the states and the private sector actors on which these frameworks rely for their actual implementation. Employers don't really know what to do with respect to this payroll tax deferral because the whole program really is is presuming as a political matter that it will force Congress's hand and that Congress will ultimately waive these obligations that are stacking up. Either that or the employees or the employers are going to be on the hook right after Christmas for these deferred tax payments. It's like we're running up a national credit card on our uh, credit card bill on our payroll taxes. And so we've already noted that there are legal problems surrounding these orders. And as we alluded to earlier, there's just this basic question of the political constitution, the right roles of the president and Congress. This last part goes to steady administration. I think it's so important. The best thing a president can do at a time like this is take uncertainty and make it into something more certain, both the uncertainty of the law and the uncertainty of the facts. The problem with these orders is that it gets it precisely backwards. It takes things that are already fairly uncertain, both the facts and the law, and explodes it into even greater uncertainty about how it will be implemented. And I think that's a real constitutional problem. Again, not a legal constitutional problem, but a problem of the basic political constitution. Uh, David, you have described the problem by noting that the basic problem here is that the president is rejecting Congress's power over the purse. And you've also said that the action is deeply disrespectful, both of Congress's power of the purse and that of the state legislatures. Given congressional paralysis and inability to act. Is there anything that Congress can do about this? Um, Congress is, of course, divided 
Um, but on some things, there's broad agreement. Uh, both Republicans and Democrats in Congress have overwhelmingly opposed cutting the payroll tax because that would defund Social Security and Medicare. So the one of the issues the president has taken on here is one on which has almost no congressional support. So the notion that this is somehow going to lead to the abandonment of the payroll tax uh, is politically implausible. Um, that means that we will have the worst case scenario that Adam describes with everybody being socked with big retroactive tax payments right around the time they're doing their holiday shopping. Um, this is a broader problem of not reaching agreement. The Democrats don't like the offer the Republicans have on the table. The Republicans don't like the offer the Democrats on the table. Both of them are going to have to swallow some things that are very unpleasant, but there is a path to agreement. They did this four times in the spring. They can do it now. Adam, Ben Sass, Senator Sass, has engaged in a Twitter discussion with President Trump uh, where he says... No president, whether named Obama or Trump or Biden or AOC, has unilateral power to rewrite immigration law or to cut taxes or to raise taxes. This is because America doesn't have kings. Do you think that in practice, this Congress will rouse itself to assert its constitutional authorities in the face of presidential unilateral action? Uh, and if not, what does that say about the nature of the constitutional conflict? Well, no, I don't think that Congress is going to intervene anytime soon, sadly. I do think that when we get into December, um, if there is a looming crisis of payroll tax bills, that might force Congress's hand not to assert itself, but to sort of acquiesce to the mess and try to clean it up. We'll see. I mean, it's going to be such a complicated time, especially if we're in the middle of a presidential transition. One of the challenges in getting Congress to act in this dispute, in any other dispute, we saw it with the border wall fence, we saw it with immigration is that everybody in Congress knows that the real pressure release valve is the president. This reminds me a lot of, either, you know, like I said, the, both the, the border wall funding debates, the debates over immigration law. We saw under, with, under President Obama, he, said, he famously said, if Congress won't act, therefore I will. I think actually, I mean, that's, that's true. All presidents tend to say something like that. I think the reverse or something like the reverse is also true. It's that because we know presidents act, Congress won't. If you're a Republican in Congress, why would you venture any kind of compromise on a policy when you know the president is just going to go and try to do whatever he wants anyway? And if you try to compromise in Congress, you'll probably get primaried. If you're a Democrat in Congress, why would you try to meet the Trump administration and Republicans halfway, knowing that you're probably not going to get a deal, the president's going to go act unilaterally, and then you're going to face, your record will, will face a threat of, of a primary challenge. I think it's precisely because the president can just walk away from the table that these discussions in Congress really don't ever culminate in anything when we most need them to compromise. Um, I'd say that that any way that we can limit the president's ability to do that through law, um, through the courts, through politics, is a good thing because it would restore the hydraulic forces within Congress to actually produce the sorts of compromises that we need today and that the founding fathers anticipated that Congress would do. But until then, we just have this fundamental lack of ambition James Madison would have put it in Congress to actually strike these um, these legislative compromises. David, you have argued that there was a president who used executive action more appropriately, and that was President Reagan. Tell us about his model. 
Uh, President Reagan's actions were very strong and very effective and have stood the test of time, but they were very different from what President Trump has just done, or for that matter, from a lot of what President Obama did. Uh, President Reagan stayed within the contours of his role as president. He didn't try to control the purse the way Congress does. He tried to control the executive branch. He passed sweeping executive orders, changing the way agencies can issue regulations, changing the way agencies can prepare budget requests, uh, and those have been in place and have governed both Democratic and Republican administrations ever since. He changed the way we talked about regulations and about the budget for good, but he did not uh, try to take power away from Congress, and that's the huge departure here. Adam, when did the effort by presidents to take power away from Congress ramp up? You note in your piece with Yuval Levin that uh, it was especially evident in the Obama era with the assertion of authority over immigration with the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals uh, and the Deferred Action for Parents of Americans and Lawful Permanent Residents, DACA and DAPA. Did it begin with Obama or uh, did it start earlier than that? No, it certainly didn't begin with Obama. I'd say the most recent debates on the way that presidents can make policy through non-enforcement of laws um, or def the deferral of payroll tax here in the Obama administration, we saw um, things like, again, immigration, non-enforcement, marijuana, non-enforcement. I think that's a, an interesting, fairly modern wrinkle. But so much of this is timeless. Teddy Roosevelt had a very broad view of the presidency that he could basically do whatever he wanted unless it was forbidden. In fact, that he needed to do it as a steward of the Constitution for the people. Obviously, Franklin Roosevelt um, faced challenges over some of his initial pre-World War II actions, Lend-Lease, and, and so on. And we saw the, the Truman administration and the steel seizure case try to assert power. These are timeless things. I think that what we see is each presidency takes the precedents that were laid down by previous presidents and finds ways to expand them, build on them. And that's one of the real challenges here is that this, there, really, there really isn't anything new under the sun here. It's just the constant expansion of smaller precedents or even bigger precedents that were laid down in, in the past. David, as uh, Adam suggests, there's been a fluctuation in the number of executive orders issued by president. It was uh, about one per year in the George Washington. Uh, uh, it really leapt up under Lincoln uh, to 11 per year and then went down again to the progressive era where it goes up to 144 a year and 181 a year uh, under Roosevelt, uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Um, and then Franklin Roosevelt spikes still further, and then it goes down again. And the recent numbers have been around 40 a year uh, from Ron to uh, President Trump. So is this part of a historical pattern? Uh, we're just doing what Franklin Roosevelt and Theodore Roosevelt did? Or is the current use of executive orders different in an age of polarization when Congress seems especially unable to act? Uh, I think there is a fluctuation, as Adam says, on this. I think the counts of executive orders are a little bit uh, deceptive. Sometimes there's an executive order um, to declare this national potted plant week. Um, that doesn't really expand uh, presidential power very much. 
there are other executive orders that are um, calling for attention rather than actually doing anything. The president signed the executive order uh, saying that federal agencies should look and see how they can help people with evictions and foreclosures, but it didn't actually do anything. Ironically, of the four actions he signed, the executive order, the only one that was truly an executive order, was the only one that really didn't do anything. Um, I think it, it really depends on the relationship between the president and Congress, on the willingness to negotiate on these issues, and on perceptives that particular areas are broken. President George H.W. Bush concluded that welfare policy was broken and started using obscure waiver authority to largely rewrite the welfare laws. President Clinton turned that into an industry. Uh, President Obama, as was mentioned, uh, concluded that immigration law was broken and that he would start rewriting that. President Trump has turned that into an industry. Uh, these things happen when there is a perception that one area of law or another uh, is not functional and the presidents don't have the ability or the desire to work out a compromise with Congress. Adam, you called on Congress to pass laws to restrain the president, but it doesn't look mm -hmm. like it will soon. The courts have been pliant in the face of several of these executive orders, including President Trump's effort to build the wall. As a result, the commentator Ross Duthat has said that far from the framers system where Congress is the primary engine of legislation, we now have two and a half branches where Congress occasionally rouses itself to pass a budget but doesn't do much else, and we have rule by executive order and checked by the courts. What do you make of that thesis and what can we do about it? Well, I think we should always avoid hearkening back to the founding era as one of congressional supremacy. I mean, obviously, Congress is the branch in Article One of the Constitution. And as I said, you know, the framers did expect Congress to really make policy through a, a checked and balanced approach. But presidents have always had enormous legal and practical power. When Madison and Hamilton were debating over the, the neutrality uh, the neutrality policy with England, um, Hamilton had a, a phrase I've always loved. He said, a president can create an antecedent state of things. We call that a first mover advantage. The president can jump in and take action that changes the ground upon which legislation or other policy fights will later happen. That's always happened. And I think we need to take account of that in our, in our system. But it is true, I think, right now that Congress is at a low ebb. The courts are have taken a... a, a um, a measured approach to this. I've actually been a fan of the way that Chief Justice Roberts has calibrated his approach in a variety of cases, ranging from the travel ban case to the more recent census and, and uh, DACA cases, and I've written on that as well. And I want to make very clear here, if I may, I actually think executive action could be a very, very good thing in our constitutional system for the reason I alluded to earlier, steady administration. So many statutes are written in such open-ended terms. They give agencies practically unbounded discretion that's really a hard it's hard for all of us to organize our lives when we don't know what the law means and to the extent that the president can take a broad statute and try to focus agency discretion in lawful ways i think that's a good thing and i've written about about that i think the dangers are the ones that, that david has alluded to that when a president uses his executive power to undermine the power of the purse or to go beyond the statute or beyond the Constitution, that creates a real challenge. And it's hard for the courts or Congress to play catch up. So I think in the long run, the best, the best routes for reform, 
and we can hope that Congress will, will, will reassert itself. And maybe it will. It did in the 1970s, some good ways, some bad ways. Maybe a president will restrain himself. That's happened from time to time, and I hope it can happen again. But I hope also that the courts will find ways to promote steady administration through reforms to administrative law, through reforms to the non-delegation doctrine and all, just to focus the range of, or to narrow the range of discretion that presidents have for unilateral action. David, that reference to the courts resurrecting the non-delegation doctrine and limiting Congress's ability to delegate vast amounts of authority to the president, of course, is hotly contested. Uh, progressives say it's an attempt to reverse the post-New Deal administrative state by judicial fiat. Uh, what do you think of it? Uh, I think that Congress has learned uh, in the current administration and, and arguably in the two or three before it that the broad grants of power given to the president are invitations to trouble. The assumption is no president would ever go beyond what we intend here, and that turns out not to be the case. Uh, Congress has given the president enormous flexibility in the defense area because they can't anticipate what a foreign adversary might do. The president used that to build a border wall. I think the likely result is that we're going to see president's hands tied more, and we may get into a crisis situation where a president really needs that flexibility and it isn't there anymore. Same's true in the disaster area, where the president has used very sweeping authority, in my view, much more than Congress granted him, and the result is likely, either by Congress or by the courts, to pull that way back, and in the future, we may not be able to respond as well to disasters. Adam, do you think that the debate about the scope of the administrative state in the courts will be changed by the Trump experience, and if... Uh, the Democrats take the White House and Congress, will they be any more sympathetic to judicial restraints on the scope of the administrative state than they are now? I mean, the, the wonderful thing about our system is that when we change seats, we change our views. And I'm sure that that um, Democrats uh, who are wary of executive power now, if, 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 President, if Vice President Biden becomes President Biden, they'll become more amenable to executive power and vice versa. And I don't think that's necessarily the worst thing in the world. It's a little bit hypocritical for everybody, but hypocrisy is the tribute of advice based of virtue. This is just what we have in our system. Um, I think that in the courts, hopefully everybody is learning from this experience, um, seeing, you know, fear, what might seem theoretical downside to executive power becomes much more concrete when we see it, executive power abused in specific cases. And so maybe that will, inform Chief Justice Roberts and the others uh, as they think through ways to recalibrate judicial review. And I want to say, since I mentioned the non-delegation doctrine, I don't know whether it's even feasible to have a real non-delegation doctrine. It might risk standardless judicial decision-making, and I'm against that too. Um, even things like the Kavanaugh major rules doctrine or ways to reinterpret statutes to narrow them, that might be a good thing. And I think that might be where things end up. Chief Justice Roberts uh, Kavanaugh, Kagan, they really seem to be thinking, uh, this is me projecting, but they seem to be thinking in terms of steady administration, not wild changes to the administrative state, but just judicial doctrines that can help recalibrate the pace, the tempo, the breadth of administrative action, making agencies act a little bit more thoughtfully, a little bit more transparently, a little bit more steadily. That would be a good thing. And, and I would like to see Chief Justice Roberts keep moving forward on that. 
David, back to our current vexations. Uh, you wrote a piece yesterday in the Washington Post. The headline was, even if Congress rescues the post office, Trump can block the funds through tools that were originally designed to prevent overspending. Tell us about that argument. Yes. Um, the president has a lot of powers that were granted by Congress to slow down or stop spending. And the idea here was that we didn't want money going out the door where thoughtful people believed it was no longer needed, that we didn't want money spent uh, wastefully if the purpose for which it was provided has disappeared. Um, but the problem is that it's very hard to judge when money is not needed and when it still is. And these are powers the president has to block money from going out the door. And if Congress provides money to rescue the post office so that it can start delivering medicine on time and ballots in November, there's a chance that the president will use these powers to keep the money from going out the door, just as he did to block the money from going to Ukraine when he became dissatisfied with that country's president. Adam, David gives concrete examples. He says that if the final relief legislation includes money to reverse recent post office uh, reductions, the president could just instruct the Office of Management and Budget to wait a month to apportion the money a month after the date of enactment could take us within a month of the election and mail voting will already have begun. Could, might courts enjoin that on the grounds that it has the illicit motive of trying to intervene with the election or are courts not inclined to second guess motive when it comes to spending decisions? I hate to answer such a hard and important question with a non-answer, but it's so hard to say, right? Because the timing is going to be everything. If President Trump takes action or inaction at a very late date that seems to upset all these arrangements that Congress is making, well, a federal district judge could jump in with uh, injunctive relief to try to force the president's hand that it might be hard for the administration to then undo on appeal in time for the election. It really is going to come down, I think, to precise timing and precisely how tightly Congress writes the statute. Um, David's pointed to such a difficult problem in administration. Congress can use its power of the purse to restrain, constrain presidents. It's very hard for Congress to use its power of the purse to force a president's hand. It's a lot like pushing on a string. It's really hard to get anything accomplished that way. I'd, I'd say it's, I mean, to state the obvious, what a terrible shame we have to even talk about this. I'm not sure whether the post office crisis is as bad as, as um, in, in fact, as bad as people are fretting right now. But the fact that President Trump is saying the things that he's saying means we need to be on high alert. And it's one of these areas then where I think federalism really has to take a stand. That individual states really need to step up and find ways to make these elections work without presuming as sad as it is to say, that the mail is going to be delivered on time. David, a number of states filed suit against the post office and the president for trying to delay the ballots before the recent policy walk back. Will those suits proceed? And how well equipped are courts to decide these very time sensitive election related issues? Well, I think it's unclear how much of the policy has been reversed. Uh, the postmaster has said that uh, he's not going forward with new initiatives for the election, but apparently an awful lot of letterboxes have been removed and sorting machines have been taken online and personnel policies have changed. So uh, the reports of mail delays are already very serious and the damage may be done. 
uh, courts certainly can move very quickly. They are equipped to move very quickly. Whether they think that's prudent is unclear. And I have little faith that the courts would want to take over administration of the Postal Service if the postmaster is really determined to slow things down. They're probably not going to be able to do much about that. Adam, the Supreme Court and the Chief Justice have been skeptical of last-minute judicial interventions in elections. They've invoked uh, the so-called Purcell principle in the Wisconsin case, Republican National Committee versus Democratic National Committee, which disfavors judicial intervention at the last minute. Um, What does that say about the ability of the courts to enforce constitutional norms regarding elections on short notice? And how how well equipped are our courts to restore these balances that the framers took around? Well, this is an issue that goes beyond just the the electoral context, too. Chief Justice Roberts has seemed very, very wary in recent years of any kind of injunctive, preliminary injunctive relief, either coming from the Supreme Court itself or coming from the lower courts. Time and time again, I mean, we've seen it most recently in the lawsuits over COVID-19 restrictions on church attendance. The, the, the Chief Justice just seems very, uh, very much inclined away from in preliminary injunctive interventions. And I think my friend Jonathan Adler from Case Western Reserve has written on this. I'd say that we shouldn't count on the courts to make any abrupt changes at the last minute, not at the Supreme Court level, at least. Um, the lower courts have tried and tried again to intervene. I think, in fact, uh, Chief Just- or Justice Ginsburg has tried to reframe the Purcell principle as a principle against Supreme Court intervention, against lower court intervention. So we'll see how that plays out. But again, I think right now, this lawsuit by the state AGs is a good reflection of where we are. The state AGs are filing lawsuits. I mean, lawsuits aren't necessarily a bad thing. I, when I was a lawyer, filed plenty of them myself. But at this time, what we really need is political action through the other institutions of government, beginning with the state legislatures and the state governors, to just try to make the changes on the ground that are necessary. Because we just can't count on, on, on lawsuits, especially when they're so... Um, complicated by these presidential doctrines like the Purcell Doctrine. David, there are a series of other presidential actions known as Presidential Emergency Action Documents, or PEDs, executive orders, proclamations, and messages to Congress that are prepared in anticipation of a range of emergency scenarios. They uh, include, as what we know in recent past, authorization, detention of enemy aliens, suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, And there have been reports recently that the president is issuing uh, feeds uh, whose topics we may not know about. As President Trump stated in March, I have the right to do a lot of things that people don't even know about. Uh, Are there any feeds that we do know about and what should we be looking for in this important area? Well, I think for all the reasons we've been discussing, we're not going to see this stuff now. We're going to see this stuff in late October or early November or indeed after the election. Uh, The courts would have difficulty intervening now, but if something were plainly unlawful, they probably could. If you do something at the very last minute, uh, then the president is essentially uh, flying solo. So I can't speculate on what the president will be doing. The president has clearly asserted powers in a number of areas that the courts have found that he doesn't have or that the plain reading of the statutes indicate he doesn't have. So I would not assume 
that what we will be seeing are things that reflect actual powers the president has so much as powers the president wishes he has or is going to try to assert at the last minute he has. Thanks for that. Adam, Elizabeth Groitin recently wrote a piece for the Atlantic NCC Battle of the Constitution site about the alarming scope of the president's emergency powers. Does the fact that these orders are secret, should it exacerbate our concerns about unchecked executive authority, or are these appropriate instruments? I'm always wary of condemning secrecy in the executive branch, because, of course, that was supposed to be sort of a foundational virtue of the executive branch, right? Alexander Hamilton, Federal 70, energy in the executive, because the executive branch can act with greater degree of secrecy and dispatch and swiftness than Congress can. And so I, I would never denounce presidential secrecy. I think, though, that in an era when presidents have been vested with so many emergency powers, there's so many statutes, emergency statutes that they can trigger seemingly on a whim. Um, and the breadth of discretion under those statutes gives them something verging on legislative power. And we need to be wary of presidential secrecy. And so I'd say this is an area that hopefully in the aftermath of, of these disputes in a future administration, whether it's a year from now or four years from now, um, Republican or Democrat, there will be a reconsideration of these things. Again, using this experience in recent years as a case study in what can go wrong or what can go overboard in unilateral executive action. Um, but for now, I think we have to take each case as it comes. David, how norm-breaking has President Trump been in his use of executive <laughs> orders? In the end, we've talked about the fact that this has been a long-standing trend. Has the president's bark been worse than his bite, or is he actually doing stuff that other presidents didn't do? Uh, this president has jumped much farther than prior presidents. Uh, there are some precedents for what the president has done in some areas, but he's expanded on them enormously. I think a happy outcome from this is that the expansions of presidential authority that this president has made will wake us up to some of the creeping expansions under his predecessors and cause us to do the kind of reconsideration Adam describes where we determine whether we really need to give this president, any president, that much power. If the election results in a Democratic president and a Democratic uh, Congress, it's possible the Democrats will be less uh, committed to executive power. The Republicans certainly won't want a President Biden to have a lot of power. And we might have a moment for a bipartisan agreement uh, to carve some of these things back, which I think would be good for everybody. Adam, same question to you. How norms breaking has the president been? You know that in some cases his bark has been worse than his bite, but do you feel that his bite's been bad in, in some areas that have transgressed that of other president? When what particular actions would you say have been most norm-breaking? Well, Jeff, you mentioned the bark being worse than the bite. It, it is worth focusing on the bark first, because one of the things that I think we've actually learned from the Trump experience is that the bark matters. That we can say, well, these are just words, not deeds. But when you see a president, his rhetoric so far outpacing both the legal constraints on him, but also his, the, the, the lengths to which he actually wants to go on policy, this disjuncture between the rhetoric and reality can actually really poison the reality itself. What I mean by that is 
when President Trump threatens to do these things, I mean, even as I was downplaying the postal emergency, people are claiming President Trump himself has said, well, maybe I will attach funds to, to, to the election process in ways that could be really disastrous. Everybody has to prepare accordingly. Everybody has to get their backs up. And you see the sort of political arms race that, that presidential rhetoric exacerbates to the point where you see news stories about war gaming out how the elections might go. And when Democrats start thinking about the worst and talking about it, Republicans in turn are going to think about the worst, all starting with President Trump's rhetoric. And so I think one of our takeaways from this has to be that you can't draw a line between what the president says and what the president does. Both of these things are important. And the framers understood that. That's why they said, and we talked about in a previous podcast a long time ago, about why Republican virtue, constitutional virtue is so important, especially with respect to the presidency. And so I don't think it's, I think it's, it's really wrong for the president's supporters to say, well, these words don't really matter. I'm just focusing on actions. The words have had real consequences. Now, as a matter of law, where has the president gone the farthest? I, I, obviously, the Ukraine scandal, um, and which not coincidentally was an elect, electoral political scandal, right? Actually trying to uh, withhold aid and to leverage that aid for his own political fortunes. I think was really was really ruinous and, and deserved all the attention and scorn it got and, and, and even more. So that's where I would focus my attention on. Uh, David, we just recently had a bipartisan Senate report describing the 2016 Trump campaign interactions with uh, Russia and Ukraine. And there was surprising bipartisan agreement that there had, in fact, been uh, extensive contacts between the campaign and Russia. Is that an example of the oversight process working? And, and why did that work in a way that other attempts at congressional oversight didn't? I think that worked in part because the evidence was so completely overwhelming. And to refuse or reject that evidence after having looked into it, other uh, Republican senators would be marking themselves as complete hacks, and they were unwilling to do so. In lots of other areas, there's been far less evidence and much greater willingness of each team to stay in its own side of the uh, line and, and stand up for its own camp. I also think that the Republican senators that supported that report may be facing uh, considerable criticism within the party, perhaps primary challenges. And I also think it's significant that while that is a report, it is not an action. It doesn't have any consequence on whether something like this or something worse could happen again. Adam, what do you make of the report? Does that suggest that Congress is better equipped to do fact-finding than actual oversight with teeth? Well, I haven't been able to read the report in full. I've only seen the news accounts of it, but I'm, I'm glad that they brought this process to a completion and really tried to shine a spotlight on these things. And the fact is that these days, for a long time now, Congress has been better suited, for better and for worse, at being ombudsman for the executive branch rather than an actual legislative branch. I wish they would do more legislating, but the oversight is important, especially when it's tied to the hooks of Congress's specific powers, whether it's legislative powers, power of the purse, impeachment power, and, and so on. And so I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they brought this through. I think one of the takeaways from this, based on the early news reports, is that it was a mistake to get too tied up on specific catchphrases like collusion, right? I, I, 
it's not clear to me just based on the latest news reports, that, and I could be totally wrong about this once I read the report, but it's not clear to me that, that the Senate panel, Senate committee actually found direct collusion, coordination between the Trump administration, sorry, the Trump campaign and the Russian government. These things always get so hazy, especially because we didn't know who's really part of the Trump campaign at any given moment in time, and we didn't really know who's part of the Russian government at any moment in time. I think the key takeaways are Russia's interference with our election and the Trump President Trump's own sort of willingness to invite foreign interference in, in the election. Most famously, where he, he said to Russia, go hack Hillary's email servers. Um, that is, I think, a, sh a shameful legacy of the 2016 election, and hopefully the Senate report has reminded us about the protections we need to take against it. David, let's uh, close where we began. I was struck by the precision of your legal analysis of the unemployment order, and there actually are legal constraints when one digs into them, but how would you characterize the president's ability to take executive action and assert some kind of legal peg, given the difficulty that people have in uh, digging into the law in the moment. I, I guess I'm asking how, how effective is our congressional statutes in actually restraining presidential action? Well, I think this comes back to the point Adam made at the outset, which is that we have a legal constitution and a political constitution. Uh, as a practical matter, our legal system cannot stop a fair amount of extra legal action the president does. Historically, we've had political norms against it, occasionally buttressed by the courts. For example, when President Truman thought he could take over the steel industry, uh, but often supported by the public and their willingness to vote out people who seem to be disregarding the Constitution and disregarding the limits on their authority. These days, I'm not sure we have a functioning political constitution. If President Trump loses, I don't think it will be because of the executive overreach. I think it'll be because of the economy or the um, uh, the, the pandemic or um, dislike of him personally, but I don't think it will be because of the overreach. And we badly need to get into a situation where politicians learn that they cannot continue to function if they exceed uh, the accepted and constitutional bounds on their power. Great. Well, that's a good place to tee up our closing arguments. And Adam, the first one is to you. Do we have a functioning political constitution? And if not, what can we do to resurrect it? I'm not throwing in the towel on a political constitution. I, I, I still think it's robust. We have dysfunctional institutions within that within that constitution. Maybe I'm splitting hairs here. I think that we'll always have energetic presidents, and that's often a good thing. And I think the challenge now is reminding both the courts and Congress, especially Congress, of how it is supposed how what its original um, value is in our constitutional system and how they can return to that. And the states as well, everything for the last hundred years or more has constantly been reorganizing itself about around the, the creeping expanse of executive power, how we understand the role of the states, the Congress and the courts. And I think we're engaged in a generational or longer term uh, reconstruction, reconstitution of those other institutions. But the political constitution, I think, is still valid in part because Americans, by and large, do value 
the the need for these institutions. We at any time like some more than others. But I think the Amer- I still have faith in the American people and in American traditions and the people embody that these things are, are not lost and won't be lost. David, last word to you. You just said that you don't think we have a functioning political constitution. Uh, what can we do, if anything, to resurrect it? Um, I think that we need to appreciate the cost of losing this. Uh, We will fight with one another. We will not agree with one another. uh, But we need to keep those fights in perspective. And we need to understand that the scorched earth approach, the winning is everything approach, uh, is ultimately going to tear down a country and tear down the means of achieving your agenda or mine. Uh, We haven't gotten to that point yet. Uh, I'm hoping that after uh, January that things will quiet down some and there'll be a longer moment of reflection on the Trump administration, but on the steps we took to get there. I would certainly start at least as early as the Clinton administration, perhaps earlier. Thank you so much, Adam White and David Super, for a vigorous, engaged, and really illuminating discussion of the political constitution, the legal constitution, and President Trump's recent executive actions. It's always wonderful to learn from both of you. Adam, David, thank you so much for joining. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks, Jeff. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Grace Zandi and Lana Ulrich. We the People friends, as your children and loved ones are learning at home during this challenging time, the National Constitution Center is providing a series of free live online classes on the Constitution. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, my colleagues and I are teaching the Constitution. It's uh, noon and 2 p.m. The classes are offered for middle school and high school and college students, as well as adult learners, if you'd like to tune in. It's so meaningful to be able to offer these free classes on Zoom. It's exciting to see the interactivity of the questions from the students. We reached 30,000 students during the spring period from March until June, and we're really excited to relaunch the classes. So please sign up your students, share them with your teachers, and check them out yourself. It is a very meaningful opportunity to use virtual technology to spread constitutional light. And please also rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is hungry for constitutional illumination and debate. And always remember that we're a private nonprofit and we rely on the generosity and passion engagement of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast and including those live constitutional classes at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.